Good morning, church. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Nehemiah chapter 2. As you're finding your way to Nehemiah chapter 2, let me catch up to speed on something. Uh, So uh, many of you are aware that on Sunday mornings uh, during this hour while you're in here, or many of you experienced this in the last hour before you came in here, uh, we have groups that meet around campus for discipleship, uh, smaller groups. Uh, If you grew up in church, uh, you probably called those Sunday school, many of you, in the churches that you grew up in. A number of years ago, uh, the church here, Schindler Drive, uh, changed the name on paper, at least, to small groups. All right, so if you looked on our website or have seen anything published in the last uh, few years or several years, it would have said small group. Now, some people still called it Sunday school. Uh, Some people called it small group. Some people called it both, like me at times, and that can get a little confusing to people if they're new to the church, especially if they're new to church. Right, some people are calling the small group, some people are calling this Sunday school. What is this? Right, so we need to, to agree on a name. All right, so do we go with uh, Sunday school? Do we go with small group? Uh, what I'm laying before you uh, as your pastor this morning is that we go with a new name altogether. All right, so uh, what we're going to uh, call our groups moving forward that meet here on Sunday mornings that I feel like captures better than those other two names, really what we're all about is this name right here. So this will be the name of the groups, Bible Connect Groups. All right. The reason why I feel like it captures, uh, in a better way, what those groups are about is because it has the word Bible in it. All right. In those groups, it's all about studying the Bible. But it's also about connecting. All right. And if you were here for our vision series, uh, the second part of that, uh, after gathering, was the word connect. So it's important that you're not only experiencing in your discipleship a gathering together with a bunch of other believers like this. This is an important part of it, but it's the end of it, all right? It's important for you to find a group of believers uh, that you can uh, do life with, study God's Word together, keep each other accountable, pray with one another. That's what these groups on Sunday mornings here on campus accomplish. And so moving forward, we're going to call them Bible Connect Group, all right? So it's going to take a little getting used to, all right? But... It's a little bit of change. We can handle a little change, I think. All right? So let's unify around that name and uh, work really hard to begin to use that common language. It's a little clunky at first, but it actually, you know, it's fine as you use it. All right? So Bible Connect Group. If you're not part of a Bible Connect Group, be sure to, after the service today, go by our Welcome Center, and we'll get you connected to a Bible Connect Group. And we'll be happy for you next week to go and visit a Bible Connect Group. If you're already in a Bible Connect Group, you keep serving there, right? Go to that Connect Group, the Bible Connect Group. Got it wrong. And, uh, and we'll look forward to seeing how God continues to use that ministry. All right? So let's get into the Bible this morning. Nehemiah chapter 2 is where we are. Uh, we're in a study of the book of Nehemiah. Last week we saw uh, Nehemiah's heart get burdened by need, and it drives him into a place of prayer. In chapter 2, uh, if chapter 1 teaches us that there's a time to pray, as we see that in Nehemiah's life, chapter 2 teaches us that there's a time to act. All right, There's a time to get to work. There's a time to get your hands dirty in gospel work around you in this world. Um, God does not desire that we just be broken over the needs and the messiness and the sin around us in this world and just pray about it the rest of our life. All right, That's what you would call spiritual apathy. And that's definitely not a... Uh, something that the Spirit of God uh, would 
want to be in our life. All right, that's a, that's a problem. It's a problem in the church, uh, spiritual apathy. So I, I read a story about a professor who was once asked or once stood before his philosophy class in a major university, and he stood before this auditorium of students, and he asked them a question to get them thinking. He said, which do you think is the bigger problem in America right now, ignorance or apathy? And a student near the back of the auditorium raised his hand, and he said, uh, I don't know, and I don't care. Some of you will get that later today ignorant and apathetic but apathy isn't just an issue out there it's something we got to guard ourselves against in here it's something we have to guard ourselves of in the kingdom let me tell you nehemiah was not a man of kingdom apathy he was a man of kingdom action he isn't just burdened by the brokenness that his heart becomes aware of his heart doesn't just become burdened by the very thing that would burden god's heart he knows something needs to be done about it And in chapter 2, we see how Nehemiah moves from burden to bold action. And eventually, God uses him to meet this this great need uh, in Jerusalem, uh, with this wall being built. All right? So, God's going to use him in a major way. God's going to use him to literally uh, help shape history. And God wants to use your life uh, in different ways for his glory to, to literally help shape eternity, to make a kingdom impact on this earth. And we're going to look at Nehemiah's life throughout the rest of this book. And we're going to learn from his life and how God used his life. When people get into chapter 2 right here, uh, they'll often argue that Nehemiah experienced so much effectiveness in uh, this story, so much effectiveness even in the kingdom of God because of his incredible leadership skills and his vision. So I think there is a lot to learn here. I think that Nehemiah is a really cool book to go to to draw out leadership principles. But you cannot miss what I believe we're ultimately supposed to learn in chapter 2 right here. That chapter 2 does reveal to us how he experiences effectiveness in the kingdom of God. How he experiences effectiveness in a way that shapes history and shapes eternity. But it has to do with something about Nehemiah's heart. As we're going to study something that continues to be true about Nehemiah's heart, it'll clue us in to what really led him to experience a life of bold action that made such a kingdom impact for the glory of God. So stand with your Bibles open. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of the king of Artaxerxes, When wine was before him, he took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had been sad in his presence. The king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, "Uh, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. The king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, just a fun little fact, some scholars believe that's Esther, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. Would you have a seat as I pray? Father, we thank you for another opportunity, a privilege, an honor, a blessing it is to come together with our brothers and sisters in Christ and get into this study, get into your word. Lord, your word, as John 17, 17 says, as Jesus says, 
is your truth. Jesus also tells us there that we're sanctified by your truth. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do just that in our life today. As we get into your word, as we study it, that you'd sanctify us by it. That you shape us by it. That you teach us by it. That you work on us by it. That you build us up by it. And, Lord, that you would help us to put ourselves underneath it with a heart that's humble and teachable and shapeable for your glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Real quick review in Nehemiah chapter 1. It's the year 445 B.C. Uh, we find Nehemiah, Israelite, who's serving as a cupbearer to the king, which is like a poison control taste tester server to the Persian king, Artaxerxes. So he's in Persia. He's living in the king's castle as the cupbearer. And he gets word, his brother comes into town, who's traveled a long way from Jerusalem, and he gives him a report about the state of Jerusalem, and it's not good. The, his home, Nehemiah's home, where uh, his people are at, where uh, it's supposed to be the promised land, uh, it should be a place that is not in the ruins that it currently is in, and it breaks his heart. And for four months, he prays about it, and then finally, he's ready to do something about it. All right, it's time to move from burden to bold action. And I want you to know this out of the gate today, that God continues to do the same thing in the midst of his people in any given generation. Prompts you to do something. What is God prompting you already to do in this series? What is God prompting to do in your life? Maybe it's showing you a need in somebody's life. Maybe he's stirring in you about an opportunity to serve in his church. Maybe he's giving you a a specific burden about a a person, about a place, or even something in your own life. For some of you, you've, over the, even the last two weeks, or maybe here recently, there's a burden in your life about the state of your marriage. Your marriage needs to experience restoration. Your marriage needs to be rebuilt. He may be pressing in on you about issues of bitterness or unforgiveness in a relationship, maybe with a spouse, maybe with someone else. He may be prompting you through this series to to be obedient in the area of generosity, not just in the funding of the mission of your local church, but also with your time, with your talent. Maybe he's prompting you in your life, in your family's life, to adopt an orphan, to, to, to press in towards a foster care, to, to foster a child, whatever that looks like. God, listen, if you're a Christ follower, God is going to burden your heart about some stuff. You say, well, that's not really happening in my life. I, I'm, I'm seeing the way that God's burdening Nehemiah and, and, and you know, it's uh, compelling him to go do something about this and he, he's burdened and now he wants to move towards bold action. I want a Nehemiah moment. I want my heart to be burdened like Nehemiah's heart was burdened. Well, in order for that to happen, you've got to start to see the world like Nehemiah sees the world. You know why Nehemiah is used so greatly for the glory of God? It's because Nehemiah understands that following God is about him stepping into God's story, not God stepping into his story. Often people approach Christianity like, I got my... I got my dreams, I got my goals, I got my aspirations, I got my plans, and I'm kind of here just to kind of, you know, invite God to come into my world and to bless my plans and to bless uh, what I've kind of mapped out for my life. And that's not biblical Christianity. If you're a Christian, by the grace of God, you've been brought into a much bigger story than your story. You've been brought into God's story. 
And there's work that God's already doing in this world. There's work that God was doing before you ever showed up in this world. And there's work that he's going to continue to do when you leave this world if Jesus doesn't come back before you do. He's at work right now up and down the streets of Jacksonville. He's at work up and down the streets of this community, fulfilling his redemptive purposes. And what he's done is he saved you and invited you to step into that and join him. And when that clicks, I'm telling you, it'll change the way you see the world. It'll change the way you see your family. It'll change the way you see your coworkers. It'll change the way you see this city. It'll change the way you see the world because now you're in his story. His mission is now your mission. And here's the way you can kind of think about it, all right? What if Jesus was walking up and down the streets of this community? What if Jesus was walking up and down the streets of Jacksonville? What if Jesus was walking up and down the hallways of your workplace? What if Jesus was walking the hallways of your home? What if Jesus was walking around the hallways of your heart? What would break his heart? How would he move towards those needs? How would he move towards the people who were lost in sin? How would he move towards the people who were living in the ruins of brokenness because of sin? How would he seek to meet those needs? That, however you would answer that, based on what we see about Jesus in his word, based upon what we read about Jesus in the Gospels, as Christians, that's how we're called to think. That's how we're called to see the world. That's how we're called to engage the world. We've been brought into his story, not him, into our story. And when that clicks, you'll begin to have a heart that's burdened by the things that burden Christ. You'll begin to have a heart that's burdened by the things that burden God's heart. Your eyes, I promise, will start to be open to needs around you. Things that you need to pray about and the things that God has positioned you to do something about. The question is, is how will you respond? When we know that God's prompting us to obey in a different area of our life, to move, to get to work, how do we respond? And this is where it's tricky because none of us really usually give God just a flat out no. All right, we get creative. We dance around and you know, hyper-spiritualize our answer, hyper-spiritualize our no. Like, listen, now, now maybe not be a good time. You know, Maybe this isn't the season of my life for me to really be obedient to step forward in the area that I feel God prompting me in. Right? I'm not ready right now. I need to read another book. In order for me to be ready, I need to get prepared. I need to get equipped. I'm too busy. I'm too messy. I'm too old. I'm too young. And this is really what we end up saying and how we end those conversations with God is, God, you're welcome to do that thing that you're wanting to do. I would just invite you to do that to somebody else. That's how naturally we tend to respond when we're prompted to not just pray about a need, but to move, about, move beyond it and to do something about it. How do we move from that place of apathy to a place of action? How do we move from that place of disobedience to a place where we, like Nehemiah, put our yes on the table? No matter what's on the line, I'm putting my yes on the table. We're going to see two things that need to be true about your life, two, two things that need to be true about your heart. And the first one is going to reach back a little bit into chapter 1. But it's this. It's going to take dependence on God. 
continued dependence on God. We see that Nehemiah is dependent on God. We saw this in chapter 1. He, he doesn't get the burden in chapter 1. He doesn't hear about the need of this wall needing to be built and the people of God needing to be protected in order to preserve the people of God so that 500 years later the Messiah could come from the people of God. Right? He doesn't hear about that, that burden and get excited and run off to Jerusalem just trying to roll his sleeves up and try to do it on his own. I know how to do it. I'm going to lean on my own personality, my own charisma, my own skill set, my own leadership, giftings. No. He sees the need and then sees and knows exactly where he needs to go. And that's in a humble posture of prayer before God. But once he's ready to act, and this is what I want you to see, because he spends the time stamp at the top of chapter 1 and chapter 2 with those two months that are listed there. Nisan and this one, Kislev, in the first chapter at the beginning, shows you that there's a four-month period of time that he's spending in prayer. So he's depending on God. But what I want you to see is now that he's ready to act, we need to see that his posture of prayer and leaning on God doesn't, con- doesn't discontinue once he begins to act. Look at how it unfolds. One day he's taking wine to the king, and the king notices something and says uh, in, in verse 2, he says, Why is your face sad? Seeing you're not sick, this is nothing but sadness of heart. Tell me what's going on. Have you, have you ever been at a restaurant and you, you realize as you sit down, the, the waiter or the waitress, the server, seems like mildly upset and frustrated that you decided to dine there that day? You ever been there? It can, can kind of kill the mood, right? Now, my wife, who often the Holy Spirit uses to kind of help me think in a more godly way, will in those moments say, hey, calm, hey, it's, hey, baby, it's a bad day. Maybe, hey, let's try to just extend to her a little something called grace, right, that God gives us, right? We just learned about that at church. Maybe we can put that in practice here. I'm like, you're right. I just don't want to feel like I have to apologize to get a refill, right? But you're right. You're right. Nobody ever had that moment? All oh, y'all had perfect servers. God bless you. Listen, it, good service helps the mood, right? And it's the same 2,500 years ago, especially when it's a specialized server assigned to the king whose job is to make sure the king's not getting poisoned. Like your job is to go in, you know, these ancient kings. It was a little bit of a stressful job because you were constantly worried you were going to get killed and assassinated. And so you need a cupbearer who's going to come in and not only test your food, but also put, put you in a good mood. You, you want to see a smile on the face of your cupbearer. You don't want to be eating your bologna sandwich and looking at his face going, why are you looking like that at me? And so that's Nehemiah's role. Well, after four months of praying and faithfully working and serving as king, one day, it's, it's this, the burden that's been, just been weighing on him, that he's been praying about, aware of, longing to do something about, it's, that burden showed up on his face. The king notices and he says, why are you sad? What's going on? And this is a critical moment, all right? This is a critical moment in Nehemiah's life because Nehemiah's got to give it a response. He's going to give a response right here. And once the cat's out of the bag, there's a dozen different ways that this could go wrong, more than that, right? The king could, he could, as Nehemiah presents uh, the, the need and presents the problem and presents what he wants to do, the, I mean, this, this king could, he could interpret this as a threat, you know, he could, he could, Interpret it as an ungratefulness, like you ungrateful little servant. You, oh, wait a second, you're going to come to me after how good Persia's been. We let you live in a castle here. You get to eat at the king's table. And now you're telling me you're wanting to go off and rebuild a wall of what could potentially be an enemy nation? And to also think that you've been behind the scenes. You've heard all of our Persian government talk. You know where our treasury's at. You may leave here. You think I'm going to let you outside of that door? How do I know you're not going to sell 
all the secrets that we have to enemy nations. How dare you, Nehemiah, come in here with a frown on your face after how good I've been to you. How about this? How about I take you out in the courtyard and I wipe the smile off your face once and for all? And under a Persian pagan government, the way it was written, a pagan king like this could have the right to do that. There's a lot on the line right here. This is a huge moment. And this is, you know, this shows us that being bold doesn't mean being unwise. Because look at the beginning of verse 3. Look at his response. He says, let the king live forever. In other words, before I, I ask you what I'm going to ask you, long live the king. He's going to be buttering him up. And I think it's sincere. I think you see some of Daniel right here in Nehemiah. I think he, he lo- even though he's a pagan boss, I think he, he loved his, his boss. I think he prayed for his boss. Nehemiah is saying, hey, before you're tempted to question my motives, I just want you to know, hey, I'm with the Artaxerxes. I'm an Artaxerxes fan. I've been loyal to you, and I love you, and I'm behind you, and I want you to live a long life of blessing. Long live the king. And he explains after that, goes into detail about the problem. He says, here's my problem, and it's not with you. It's not with my king. It's not with my job. It's not with anything in the, in the palace that I'm living in. It's I'm burdened. That the place of my, where my ancestors are buried is in ruins. I'm burdened that the city of Jerusalem is vulnerable to attack. And that is something that would have tugged the heart of that Persian king. Because in that Persian culture, they had this high place of honor for burial sites of their ancestors. So scholars believe that this is what God used to kind of grab Artaxerxes' heart. Uh, Verse 4, it does grab his heart. It says, then the king said to me, well, what are you requesting? What do you want? And this is the big, like, gulp moment, right? Because he's he's stepping into action right here. He's getting off the sideline. He's getting into the game. This is a scary moment. But in this moment, a very intense moment, a very scary moment, a moment where it says, he, he admits there, I was scared. Look at the next move. In the life of Nehemiah right here. Before the big ask. End of verse 4. He said, so I prayed to the God of heaven. So I prayed to the God of heaven. As he moves ahead with a whole lot on the line. We're going to see Nehemiah throughout this entire story. Maintain this blessable, humble posture before the, before the Lord. He doesn't bust out the PowerPoint presentation. I know nobody uses PowerPoint anymore. He doesn't lean on his charm or his charisma. In this moment, where does he go? He goes to God. He models for us over and over and over again what we see in Christ's life modeled for us perfectly there, and that's communion with God. Nehemiah is modeling for us what it looks like to abide in Christ, what it looks like to depend on the Lord in difficult moments, what it looks like to practice the presence of the Lord. This is not a guy who just wakes up and opens up his Bible, hey, any, many, money, mo, verse, read, then I'm going to move through the rest of my day. In, in my flesh, according to my own power and my own insight. He's a man who lives in communion with God. And he's a man who experiences the power of God's presence, even when he's throwing up little flare prayers like this. You see, like seven or eight times, these little prayers thrown up. And these are powerful. I've experienced the power of these in my own life. I was called into ministry at the age of 18 and just... Dropped all my plans, plans to go into fire school uh, after high school. And I dropped all that and felt the Lord calling me into ministry. And I had no idea what I was doing. You say, well, weren't you raised in a pastor's home? 
Well, yeah, but that doesn't really help when you're not really spiritually paying attention to things. I ran from God. And when you are in ministry and behind the scenes of ministry, boy, I'm telling you, when you put your yes on the table for ministry, you know, it's almost like marriage. You literally have no idea what you're getting into, right? Some of you are laughing because you know exactly what I'm talking about. I just thought it was going to be fun. I thought she was just going to do my laundry every day and bring me my lunch and watch baseball with me every night. Yeah, yeah. I say that, listen, I, I compare marriage with ministry there because being in ministry is similar and that it may not be what you expected, but there's a lot of joy that you experience. So much joy that you experience. So I went off to school and I studied for ministry and I can't tell you the, 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 the privilege that I, I felt the privilege of being in ministry, the blessings of getting to do what I get to do, seeing Jesus work in people's life, it's been, a, it's been an amazing thing. But let me tell you, it also entails stepping into some really difficult moments at times. It also entails stepping into some really dark rooms at times. And yes, I went to Bible college, and yes, I've read a bunch of pastoral care books, but I'm telling you, when you walk into a room where there's two teenage boys in tears because their dad just suddenly died in a car accident, the entire family was in, and he was a good dad, he was a faithful dad, he was a godly dad. Me as a, me as a young pastor, I'm standing outside that room going, begging God to help me. Lord Jesus, will you be near? God, would you restrain my lips? Help me to speak life. Help me to comfort. Help me because I feel entirely inadequate to be walking into the situation right now. And in those moments, it's amazing how just those little flare prayers of the power of God's presence will show up and will minister to you and will carry you through. And this week, I want, I want to encourage you to intentionally practice the presence of God. When life feels overwhelming, when fi- life feels scary, you can practice this even sitting in your chair this morning because some of you are in the middle of it. When you face those moments in your marriage this week and you know you've got to go into that house and you know it's a critical moment and you know you're not walking in step with one another, you know you're not in unity, it's sitting in your car, communing with God, going, God, I need your help. I need you to control my mouth. I need you to show me your grace, to give me patience. When you blow it, when you fall on your face this week, when you wander away from God in that moment, flare prayer. It may, you may be in a place where you can't get alone with God. God, forgive me. That's not who I am. That's not who you saved me to be. Forgive me. I confess my sin. Forgive me. I know you haven't left me. I know you're still there. Forgive me. Nehemiah is practicing the presence of God. He's communing with God right here in the presence of Artaxerxes. He's saying, God, I know you're there. Please change this king's heart. Who knows what he's praying? Please don't let it be off with my head. But what we see in Nehemiah is Nehemiah knows he's not self-sufficient. He's not trusting ultimately on his persuasiveness. He's not trusting on some little speech he's prepared. He's not leaning on his charisma. He's trusting in and he's depending on God. And he lifts up this prayer and God meets Nehemiah in that moment. What a gift that is. Rejoice in that gift this morning. That you don't have to wait till the end of life to get God. He gives you himself right now. He hears. He he listens. He's actively involved in your life. His spirit is inside of you. We pray, he hears. God moves. We, church, we cannot, we cannot forget that we are dependent people. 
When we do, we get in trouble. Often, listen, some of you here this morning, you want God to work in a situation in your life. We want God to move. We want God to change the world, change our circumstances, change a relationship. But yet we're too prideful often to get low and to say, God, would you do it? Would you do the work that only you can do? Would you be in that posture this week of dependence? Number two, what moves us from burden to bold action? It's also going to involve confidence in God. We see that Nehemiah is confident in God. So the bold action that we see in Nehemiah is not because he's confident in his plan, as we'll see right here. It's because he's confident in God. And that goes hand in hand with dependence on God, right? When you're depending on God in prayer, it leads to you being more confident in God and his character and his truth and his promises, which leads to you taking more bold kingdom action in your life. Because these are some incredible, I mean, big asks that he's laying out before Artaxerxes in this conversation. Huge. And we need to recognize and think about, like, where is that bold action bubbling up out of? Right? It's, here's, why, here's what it is. It's because Nehemiah is somebody that just wasn't saying some stuff about God in chapter 1. He believed it. He believes he's confident about what he said about God in chapter 1. That God is a great and awesome God. He believes that God is keeping his covenant and his steadfast love with his people. He's a man who knows God's word. He knows redemptive history. He knows where God stands with his people. He understands that God's made promises that he intends to keep. And he's operating with confidence in the good character and promises of God. He's looking to God believing that. That's, that's the only way, that's the only explanation to this kind of boldness. Because think about it. Just zoom out from the situation. And first think about the, the great need. Think about the, the dire situation Jerusalem's in. What if he keeps his eyes on that? Where's that going to get him? People need a leader to unify them. They're completely spiritually in disarray. They need resources. They need lumber. Uh, a bunch of stuff they don't have. The ability to get, the finances to get, the needs in Jerusalem are vast. Then you've got a pagan king right here. right? What economic and political interest does he have in rebuilding a wall? And then you've got, what, what does Nehemiah bring into the table? What good, what good can he do in a project like this? He's a cupbearer, he's not a carpenter, much less a project manager. So Nehemiah is completely aware that the need is great. He knows that He's inadequate to help in any way. He knows the resources are lacking. But he also knows if he fixates on his own capacity, if he fixates on the greatness of this need, it is going to swallow him up with discouragement. It's going to overwhelm him. It's going to fill his heart with anxiety. If he looks at himself too much, if he looks at the state of Jerusalem too much, he's going to get discouraged. You know what that leaves him with the choice of? If you can't look to Jerusalem, if it's in dire, you know, it's in a dire state. If I can't look at it myself because I got inadequate abilities, if I can't look to the king and, and put my hope in him because who knows what he's going to do? Where, what possibility? Where, where am I left? Where, where do I put my where do I put my hope in? Where's the only place I can put my hope and confidence in? Anybody? God. All right, we got one spirit-filled Christian here today. All you were thinking it, right? It's God. Some of you this morning are in a storm of life. Some of you this morning are not only in a storm of life, but you're swallowed up in a storm of discouragement. 
of anxiousness. And often when that happens, what's, what's happened is you've become fixated way too much on the greatness of the need and your inability to fix it, and that leads to discouragement. That leads to being swallowed up in anxiousness. That leads to you being frozen in your faith. And what you need to do this morning is you need to wake up and realize you don't have the power to speak into that storm and calm it. You don't have the power to speak into the ruins of whatever situation it is in your life that burdens your heart and to bring life and restoration to it. You need to place your hope and your confidence in the one who can. You need to put that back into the hands of God this morning. So Nehemiah's eyes aren't on himself, not on the seemingly hopelessness of the whole situation. He's focused on God. And that's why he steps forward in bold action and gets bold before the king. And the boldness, I mean, it spills out. It says, And I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. There it is. That's a big ask. It's like brace for impact. And look at the king's response. It says, And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside me, beside him, How long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. Now, notice the initial concern of the king. It's not, What are you up to? Hold on a second. That sounds sketchy. It's like, When are you going to be back? You know what that tells us? That tells us that he appreciates the work ethic of Nehemiah. We could preach a whole sermon there about how we're called to live up underneath a Christian work ethic. That you should be a blessing to your workplace. You live in a secular workplace, that's a great place for you to shine the light of the gospel in the way you're devoted to that work, in the way you show up on time, in the way you finish assignments, in the way you bring a certain kind of energy to that office that reflects the character of Christ. You know, Nehemiah goes to his boss, and his boss is like, man... I don't want to see you. When are you going to be back? You can go do that. How many of us would go to our boss and say, hey, I want to go on a year-long mission trip? And the boss is like, well, I've been kind of waiting for you to quit for three years. See you later. (laughs) No, may we be a people that go to a boss like that and they go, man, we hate to lose you. I understand you got to go, but we want you to know you're going to leave a void behind here. Teach us something about a Christian work ethic there. Nehemiah continues in verse 7, And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let the letters be given to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through it until I come to Judah, and let in a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. All right. So before we get to how big and bold that is, just hey, there's a little note there about how it's important to notice that he's not just a prayer, he's a planner. He's prepared. And those two things are not at odds, praying and planning, right? Some of us, maybe it usually tends to work out this way. Those of us who are really good at planning and organizing, and we've always got a list to do, and you you rest good when you can get a list done, but you never really rest because there's always another list you're working on. Those type of people who become very organized tend to be people that they find it difficult to experience intimacy in their relationship with God. And then people who often will, you know, find a lot of time to get intimate with the Lord and, and they have a passion for Jesus. And there's a closeness in that fellowship. Often they struggle on the organizational side. Warren Wearsby has a great beatitude that he made up himself that says, blessed are the balanced. You can be both. 
We should see that preparing and planning and being organized and praying are all spiritual things that honor God. For the last four months, what we see is that he hasn't just been on his knees praying. He's been at his desk planning. He's prepared for this moment. Which is really good because if he's not prepared in this moment, that could have gone bad for him. Right? He's had a big ask. He's laid it out there. Yes, I'll do it. What's your plan, Nehemiah? Oh, I didn't. I honestly didn't think you'd say yes. Let me go get my plans together. No, hold on a second. You're not prepared. Go back and fix me a bologna sandwich. But he's prepared. And these are bold requests that he lays out before him. He has a purpose, a time frame. He has paperwork. He has all these needs listed out. He even asked for a house. Isn't that interesting? He's like, hey, King Artie, listen, I'm, maybe, I know, you know, since you're considering letting me go, and since you're letting me go, would you also give me a passport? It's going to be difficult to travel the distance between Iraq and Jerusalem through all of those forests with, with all the different Persian guards who could take my life. So if you could just give me the authority along the way, that would be great. And if you could also, I know this might be another big ask, but could you give me a credit card? And could just the Persian government just fund this whole project? So along the way, we can pick up the supplies that we're going to need. That would be great. And while you're writing checks, could you also maybe just write a check that I want to build a little house there while I'm there, while I'm managing this project? It's a bold ask. And there should be like a, a lot of reasons that the answers to all those questions should be no. No, 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 no. Fix me a sandwich. But he says yes. And what we find out here is that Nehemiah knows why he says yes. And it's at the end of verse 8. He says, for the good hand of my God was upon me. There it is. Nehemiah knows that this whole story is not about him. It's about the God who is authoring the story. How do you explain that a foreign king is given a green light to a project like this? that he should have no political or economic interest in. How do you explain that the Persian government is not just going to let him go, they're going to fund this entire project, an extravagantly expensive rebuild of the walls of Jerusalem? How do you make sense of it? How does this happen? Well, a humble, lowly cupbearer could tell you how. Because what he's going to tell you is he's going to say, read a verse like Proverbs 21.1 that says, the kings of this earth, Their heart is a stream of water in the hand of my Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. Nehemiah knows that this is all of God's doing. He's recognizing that it's the sovereign, protective, providing, personal, gracious hand of God that's fallen on his life. And if you're here in Christ this morning, I just want us all to recognize that the hand of God has fallen upon our life. I believe if you are a child of God, you should be able to step back this morning. Just ask this question. Why am I even a Christian? Why am I a Christian this morning? How many of you, and please don't raise your hand to this question. How many of you would say, you know what? I think I'm a Christian today because I've been, I mean, I've been pretty awesome. I've been really good. I've been really perfect. I've been really faithful. I've been very trustworthy. You know, I'm kind of a big deal great gift to the kingdom of God or would you say with a humble heart this morning I'm a Christian today because the good hand of God sought me and saved me 
I'm a Christian today because the good hand of God forgave me and redeemed me and provided for me and protected me along the way and made me clean when I was dirty and made me spiritually rich when I was spiritually poor, gave me hope when I was hopeless, set me free when I was in the bondage of sin, gave me victory when I sat in a place of defeat, adopted me when I was an orphan. I brought nothing to the table when it comes to me becoming a Christian. I brought nothing to the table when it comes to my salvation. I contribute nothing to it other than the sin that made the salvation necessary. Here's my story in Christ Jesus. The good hand of God was upon me. Some of you have seen the blessings of God pour down on your life. Some of you this morning, you sit next to a person that you're still married to. And you're here because grace upon grace upon grace has been poured out on your life in that relationship. Would you say, if that's you here in your heart today, that I'm standing here in this covenant relationship because the good hand of God has been upon us? It's amazing how much you'll turn with humility and work on that relationship in a different way when you'll just recognize that. God, thank you. We've come this far and this morning. We're coming back to you to ask you to help rebuild it. If you see your kids showing evidence of spiritual life, Is that you? If that's you, every right-thinking Christian parent knows that if anything good, if anything supernatural happens in the life of my kid, it's not because I crushed it as a dad. I have both modeled faithfulness and an example of Christ-likeness at times in front of my kids and also the dysfunction of sin. I get it wrong. I know I said I wasn't going to tell any more Max stories. I'm going to tell you another one. Just a few days ago, we have this rule in our house, and maybe you had this with your kids growing up or have it now. Don't yell your mother's name across the house as if she's a maid. Like she's going to sprint into the room. Do you ever beckon call? Don't do that. Walk across the house like a decent human being and talk to her like a decent human being. And so when the kids are little, you really struggle with that. Mom, 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 mom. It's about nothing, about something trivial. And so we're getting ready. And we're in the bathroom in our room, and I hear Max in the morning. You know, there's, there's noise, and it's a little muffled, but I hear that, Mom, 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 Mom. And I walk in, and there's that dude who's just sitting there eating a cereal. It's like, stand up. I, like, got kind of into the flesh. It's like, stand up. He's like, I said, no, keep your mouth shut. Don't talk back to me. And I just reamed him out. I mean, I said, listen, how many times have we told you don't yell across the house? What is wrong with each other trying to talk again? Stop talking back. You're dishonoring your parents. You're dishonoring your father. When you dishonor me, you dishonor God. How dare you? We told you a million times not to yell mom across the house, and here you are doing it again. And if you keep doing it, if you do it one more time, I'm telling you, I will put you in your, I'll put you in time out for a week. And he raised his hand. That's like, I need to say something. I was like, what do you want to say? He said, I wasn't saying mom. He said, Penelope, the dog, was in my room getting into stuff she's not supposed to get into. And I was yelling out. I was like, parent fail. <laughs> so I got down on a knee and I said, come here. I said, I messed up. All right? That rule still stands. Don't yell mom across the house. But in this moment right here, I'm wrong. Daddy's wrong. You forgive me. Hey, I missed the mark. You say, well, why do you get up there and why do you 
shared things like, I promise you do not want a pastor standing in front of you pretending like he has it all together. Because none of them do. And I'm telling you, if anything good comes spiritually in the life of my kids, if my kids become Christian, I'm not standing before this church like, hey, let me tell you how you can crush it as a parent and how your kids can become Christian as well. I'll be saying to God, be the glory, the good hand of God alone saved my children. Some of you have walked through messy stuff, bad stuff. And I'm a little over time. You guys good? I just got a little bit more to tell you. Some of you have walked through some really bad, some really messy stuff. And here you are this morning. Here you are. Think about all that you've gone through. And you're in Christ. And here you are this morning. Some of you look back and it's just crazy to think about it. You, you should not even be alive. And yet here you are, alive, air in your lungs, with a heart full of affection. Would you say today, it is because the good hand of God is upon my life. I think about our church. I think about what God's doing. I think about this room full of people right here. I think about how many of you are inviting people to this church. We're seeing new faces. We're seeing God over these last few years work in people's life, restoring marriages, people being saved, people being baptized. God is on the move. And I believe that, hey, the best is yet to come. But what we need to recognize right now in the middle of it and what we need to recognize moving forward, that it is because the good hand of God has moved upon us. Our confidence is in Him. And as we recognize that, we're able in our personal lives and corporately as a church to move forward with boldness like Nehemiah. Confident that His mighty, sovereign, good, and gracious hand is always at work. That's how Nehemiah moves ahead with so much boldness. In a culture, by the way, he's going to get a lot of opposition that is not always going to applaud steps of boldness in the kingdom of God. Does that sound familiar? We're called to follow God. We're called to follow this word. And there's things that I'll say in here that will be applauded, hey, that you will be attacked for out there. How do we move forward boldly with kingdom action the same way Nehemiah does? Look at Nehemiah. We move forward confident and expectant because we believe we've entered into a greater story. We believe we've entered into God's story. We believe His Word is true. We believe His promises will not fail. We believe promises like when Jesus said, this is my church and the gates of hell itself won't prevail against you. If you believe that is true, boldness should come up out of your life this week. We move forward in boldness because we depend on God and because we're confident in God. And we see that in Nehemiah. And we don't stop seeing that in Nehemiah. As you begin to see Nehemiah, he's going to get a group together. He's going to start traveling in the second part of, of chapter 2 to Jerusalem. He's going to get to work, man. And he's going to get there and you're going to see how he's going to develop teams. And he's going to show you some great leadership skill. He's going to face opposition and not let it slow him down. And what we're going to see all along the way is the key to all of that is he was confident in God and he's dependent on God. You see it in the very last verse of chapter 2 after he deals with some, some opposition that we'll come back to in chapter 4. It says, then I replied to them, these guys that were giving him problems, mocking him, intimidating him about building this wall. He said, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build. 
but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. The key to his boldness through the rest of this story is he's a man who keeps turning his attention heavenward. He keeps depending on God. He keeps placing his confidence and his hope in God. And that is how he prospers. And that's what we need to do. Hey, what's burdened in your heart this morning? What needs to be rebuilt in your life? What do you feel like God's calling you to do? Maybe it's something that just feels too big and possible. Maybe it's a situation that just feels... It's just in too much... It's just the ruins. It's just too far gone to be rebuilt. Maybe you're asking questions. How do I move forward? How do I get to work? How do I take steps of bold action? How do I live a life that shapes eternity? I tell you, let's keep it simple. You depend on God and you remain confident in God. That's all you'll ever need to remain bold in the kingdom of God. And Nehemiah is a great example that we can follow. But I'll tell you what, what we remember in a story like this is that it's not about Nehemiah. In fact, bow your head and close your eyes so you know that I'm closing. And I want you to listen closely as I close this down. Because as we get to this point of a sermon like this, you begin to think about an example like Nehemiah you start to think about what if I can't get this right and you've got to let these stories point you to the main point of the text to the main person that all of scripture points to and that's what Nehemiah does I want you to think about it Nehemiah leaves the comforts of a king's table to enter a broken city in need of restoration to restore what's been lost does that remind you of anything Jesus leaves the comfort of heaven to come into the brokenness of the world in need of salvation and restoration to redeem what's broken and what is lost. I want to encourage you this morning. You won't always perfectly move from burden to boldness. From burden to obedience. We won't. But the good news as we fix our eyes on the cross this morning is that we serve a Savior who had a burden for us, solace in our need, and has perfectly moved into perfect, bold obedience to the law and to the Father and completed a perfect work on the cross in our place. That we would be made right with God. Would we look to Him this morning? Nehemiah is a great example, but it's really meant to point us to Christ. Would you rest in that truth? Would you look back and celebrate that faithfulness? Would we look to Jesus? Would we receive His grace and ask Him for fresh faith and the power to say yes to the things of God that He's invited us into? I'm going to trust that the Holy Spirit is showing you how you need to respond this morning. No matter what you're going through, no matter what needs to be rebuilt, no matter what needs to be restored, no matter what the burden is, no matter what the calling is, the answer this morning is for your heart. to experience two things, and that's dependence on God and confidence on God. So I pray that would happen. I'll be down front if you need someone to pray with you, if you need to be saved, if you need to join our church, if you need to be baptized. I'll be ready to talk to you down front. I'm going to trust that the Holy Spirit's showing those of you who know Christ how you need to respond this morning.